The Bible reading today is taken from Lamentations, chapter 1. We're starting the reading at verse 1. How deserted lies the city once so full of people! How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations! She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her, they have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labour, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations, she finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed festivals. All her gateways are desolate, her priests groan, her young women grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters, her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. All the splendour has departed from daughter Zion. Her princes are like deer that find no pasture. In weakness they have fled before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and wandering, Jerusalem remembers all the treasures that were hers in the days of old. When her people fell into enemy hands, there was no one to help her. Her enemies looked at her and laughed at her destruction. Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. All who honoured her despise her, for they have all seen her naked. She herself groans and turns away. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. Look, Lord, on my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy laid hands on all her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary, those you had forbidden to enter your assembly. All her people groan as they search for bread. They barter their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. Look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you? All you who pass by, look around and see, is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire, sent it down into my bones. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, faint all the day long. My sins have been bound into a yoke, by his hands they were woven together. They have been hung on my neck, and the Lord has sapped my strength. He has given me into the hands of those I cannot withstand. The Lord has rejected all the warriors in my midst. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young men. In his winepress the Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah. This is why I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit. My children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, 
but there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has decreed for Jacob that his neighbours become his foes. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. Listen, all you peoples, look on my suffering. My young men and young women have gone into exile. I called to my allies, but they betrayed me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they searched for food to keep themselves alive. See, Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within, and in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. Outside the sword breathes, inside there is only death. People have heard my groaning, but there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my distress, they rejoice at what you have done. May you bring the day you have announced, so that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you, deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my sins. My groans are many, and my heart is faint. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, we do thank you that you know each one of us, you know what we're going through at this current time. And we pray that as we come to your word now, that you would speak to us. We know your word has something to say to each one of us. So we pray you'd open our ears to hear and our hearts to take on board what we need to hear at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I guess many of us at some point have struggled with reconciling God's sovereign power and love on one hand with the suffering that goes on in the world on the other. That may be uh, as a result of some personal experience of grief. It may be seeing the pain of a country experiencing a natural disaster. It may be witnessing the suffering that the current crisis has brought on the whole world. Whatever the situation for you, the grief it has caused may have left you feeling alone and desperate for, for comfort. Mixed in with that feeling of grief may be a sense of guilt. We know that we fail God, we continue to fail him, uh, despite his clear instructions in the Bible of how we should live our lives. It may be mixed with anger at other people who've caused us pain, as well as anger at God for allowing them to do what they did. We may call out for justice to be done. But we're also aware of all that God has done for us and continues to do for us. And we cling to the hope that his faithfulness brings in the midst of our despair, as well as praying for his forgiveness and restoration. All these themes can be found in the book of Lamentations. It was written to help us live in a world of suffering. Yes, we look forward to the day when there will be no more suffering, but in the meantime, it helps us to cope with our own suffering and gives us a greater heart for others who are suffering. It does that by pointing us to, to Jesus Christ, the man who underwent tremendous suffering for our sakes and is full of compassion. But Lamentations isn't a theological textbook. It's been written as a poem because in poetry we hear people speaking. We feel what they're going through in a real way 
as they express their heartfelt emotions. There's a difference between reading a book on the First World War written by a historian and reading a poem composed by someone who was on the front line. Unfortunately, some of the literary effect is lost in the English translation, but let me explain briefly how the book has been put together. Each of the five chapters in the book is a poem. Um, the first four are what's called an acrostic, which means that each stanza starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and there's 22 of those. Chapter three is the, the peak of the book, in which is found that wonderful verse which we often turn to, often ignoring the rest of the book. Um, verse 22 of Lamentations 3, which says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And to make it clear that chapter 3 is the pinnacle, each of the three sentences of each stanza also start with the same letter which is why it's given often 66 verses in our English translation. But the book doesn't end with chapter 3. Uh, in some ways it would be nice if it did, um, but the pain and the destruction are still there. And so there's more of a tailing off. Chapter 4 has two sentences per stanza, and chapter 5 has just the one. And the reason for this structure in the book is probably to try and bring order out of the chaos that the book describes. Of the three main characters in the poem, there is the narrator who reports in the third person on the destruction of Jerusalem, but he also speaks in the first person as someone who has himself experienced the terrible situation and identifies with the city. There's a representative of the people of Jerusalem who has been personified as Lady Zion. And then in chapter 5, the people of Jerusalem speak collectively. Interestingly, we don't actually hear God speak directly, but all three of the characters speak to God, and the narrator speaks about God. Well, having said that Lamentations is not a history book, it uh, is important to know something of the historical context in which it was written. By 605 BC, Babylon had become the great world power. It was at that time that the prophet Jeremiah continued to warn the people of Judah and the leaders in Jerusalem about what would happen if they persisted in their sins, their sins of social injustice and worship of false gods. He also warned them about the folly of seeking other political alliances against Babylon. However, they ignored him and threw him in prison. In 597, BC, King Jehoiakim foolishly chose to rebel against Babylon, but was quickly put down by King Nebuchadnezzar. He was killed, the city surrendered, and many citizens were taken off into exile. Nebuchadnezzar put Zedekiah on the throne, but after 10 years, he too rebelled against Babylon. This time, Nebuchadnezzar decided to finish the job. He invaded Judah, destroyed its towns and villages, and laid siege to Jerusalem for 18 months before the Babylonians invaded the city. Those who hadn't starved already and weren't slaughtered were taken off to Babylon, whilst every building in the city was razed to the ground, including most notably the temple built by Solomon. And so the context of this book is suffering on a massive scale. 
not just human suffering and death, but the devastation, the humiliation of a city and a nation. The destruction of this symbolic presence of who they considered to be their all-powerful God. It's been described as the most traumatic event in the history of the Old Testament. And it's out of that horrendous experience of pain that Lamentation speaks. So let's come on to the first chapter, and the point I want to make first of all is that tears have been given to us by God to help us grieve. To cry and grieve is natural and healthy. Colin Smith has written a, a great book based on Lamentations called For All Who Grieve, and he describes tears as the, the shuddering of the body at the pain of the soul, the shuddering of the body at the pain of the soul. There are lots of tears in this first chapter and in the whole book. As early as verse 2, we're told, bitterly she, that's Jerusalem, weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. In verse 16, Jerusalem speaks for herself. This is why I weep, she says, and my, my eyes overflow with tears. In chapter 2, verse 11, my eyes fail from weeping. I'm in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground. Tears run throughout the book because in grief, tears keep coming, even at moments when we don't expect them. Grief is ultimately mourning a loss. Jim Baker describes it in this way. He writes, grief is the inward desolation that follows the losing of something or someone we loved. A child, a relative, an actual or anticipated life partner, a pet, a job, one's home, one's hopes, one's health, or whatever. Most common form of grief is probably the loss of someone through death. Many people throughout the world are grieving loved ones at this time who've died from COVID-19, as well as other illnesses. As Christians, we're told in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we grieve differently from those who have no hope. We know death is not the end, and yet we still grieve. And we need to give ourselves time to grieve. After a death, our lives will never be the same again. Each time we lose someone, it leaves a scar that never goes away. In some cases, it's not just a scar, it's more like an amputated limb. What is the grief that Lady Zion is experiencing? Well, have a look at that, that opening verse. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she? who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Do you see the great contrasts there? The city was once full of people and life and activity, and now is empty and dead. Reminds us of some of the, the images of cities around the world in lockdown. There's something disturbing about seeing something empty that was once full. She was once happily married, and now we're told she's a widow. She was a queen with all the wealth and honour that goes with that, and now she's a slave. I wonder if you've experienced a loss like that. Maybe you know what it's like to become a widow. 
not just the loss of your, your husband or wife, but a change in the way people relate to you, a change in the things you do. You used to get invited out as a couple, and now the invites are dried up. People feel embarrassed around you. Maybe you've lost your job, or you've entered retirement, and you've lost not just the income that goes with that, but the, the status and meaning that you had in your life. You know you shouldn't get your meaning from your job. After all, our trust is in Jesus. But a part of your life has been taken away, and you feel that sense of loss. To cry is an honest expression of our emotions. I know we're British and we don't like to, to show our emotions, but God made us with emotions. And he wants us to be honest and not put on a mask and pretend that everything's okay when it's not. In chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Let your tears flow like a river day and night. To cry doesn't necessarily mean we're struggling in our faith. It may just mean we're sad and we're expressing that sadness in a God-given way. We also need to be able to talk about how we're feeling. There may be a time when we don't feel able to talk. We just feel numb. But sooner or later you need to tell those closest to you what you're going through, what you're feeling. They have to use poetry, but you need to try and use words. We need to let people into our grief, not just put on a brave front when we're struggling. The Book of Lamentations is not just a poem about death and grief. It's about the loss of something more fundamental. The people of Judah enjoy the amazing privilege of being the covenant people of God. But God has withdrawn his blessing. Previously, the people would come together in joy to, to worship God in the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But now verse 4 says, the roads to Zion mourn. And no one comes to her appointed festivals. Verse 6, all the splendor has departed from daughter Zion. She had a special covenant relationship with God, which goes back to the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the book of Genesis, which included the promise of land. But now, not only is the temple, the place of worship about to be destroyed, the land is to be taken away as they're taken off into exile. They're also humiliated. Look at verse 10. The enemy laid hands on all her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary, those you had forbidden to enter your assembly. This is a terrible loss that Judah's feeling. What makes it harder is that she recognizes her own guilt. Our tears are often mingled with guilt and grievance at others. In the middle of verse 5, there's a difficult statement there, isn't there? It says, the Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. But what this doesn't mean is that whenever we experience grief, it is because we have sinned in some way, and the Lord is punishing us for that. The other book on suffering in the Old Testament is that of Job, and we're told right at the outset of that book that Job was blameless in the sight of the Lord, and yet he undergoes terrible suffering. In the New Testament, when Jesus' disciples come across a blind man, they ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened 
so that the works of God might be displayed in him. But in this specific situation, Lamentations, what has happened to the people of Jerusalem is because of their sin. Verse 8 says, Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. And to verse 9, her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. And the people know that. We read their confessions of sin. Verse 20, see, Lord, how distressed I am. I'm in torment within. And in my heart I'm disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. What has happened to Jerusalem is not a, a sudden rash reaction by God to Israel's momentary disobedience. God has been warning his people for hundreds of years about their rebelliousness. And the people know it. But whilst there is an acknowledgement of guilt, there's also a sense of grievance at God. Verse 12 says, Is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? Although it's the Babylonians who've caused this pain and suffering, Judah knows that behind it all is God. And over the next few verses, there are plenty of references to what God has done. Verse 13, have a look there, it says, From on high he sent fire, sent it down into my bones. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, faint all the day long, and so on, and so on. On the one hand, Jerusalem knows her punishment is deserved. At the same time, she seems to be thinking, but did it have to be on this scale? She's crying out for those who've suffered as a result of the destruction of the city. It's what's called a lament, an appeal to God in the midst of suffering with a sense of, of protest. There are plenty of laments in the Psalms where the psalmists express their grievance towards God. How could you let this happen? How long, O oh God? Laments are not intrinsically sinful. They are written by those who believe in God, who accept he's in control of the world, but who don't understand why he allows certain things to happen and are trying to work that through. And I think lamenting and this mixture of guilt and grievance is appropriate in our current situation. We're calling out to God to stop the suffering that is going on at the moment. We don't fully understand why it is happening. But we're also conscious of our sins. We're conscious of the sins of the world. It would be wrong to assume that God doesn't care about the rebellion of the world. After all, we're told that there will be one day, a day of judgment, when people will be punished for their sins. If they've not accepted the forgiveness that Jesus offers and submitted to his lordship. But the key verse in the book of Lamentations, the key truth to take away from this series is right in the centre of the book in chapter 3, verse 31. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. God does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. As we will see over the coming weeks, he's intrinsically a God of love, not a God of anger. 
Which brings us to our final point. The Lord sees our tears and provides comfort. We've seen the tears of Lady Zion. We felt her anguish and despair. She's experiencing great loss. What's the hardest thing about her grief? Five times it says in this first chapter, there is no one to comfort her. Verse two describes how her friends have abandoned her. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They've become her enemies. Verse 16, she says herself, this is why I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me. No one to restore my spirit. When we are grieving because we've lost something or someone, no one can change that. What has happened has happened. And so what we need more than anything is comfort. And two of the worst things about this crisis for me have been, first of all, the thought of people dying in hospital or a care home without their loved ones there to comfort them in their final moments. And secondly, funerals where people are mourning the loss of a loved one without their their wider family and their friends there to comfort them in their loss. To provide genuine comfort to someone who is grieving, we need to be able to show we understand their pain. And the tragic thing about this passage is that it feels to Lady Zion that God does not understand what she's going through, which is why she calls out to God to see what she's going through. Have a look at verse 9. Look, Lord, on my affliction. The enemy has triumphed. Or verse 11. Look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. Verse 20. See, Lord, how distressed I am. She feels that the Lord is blind to what is going on. Of course, God does see everything. He does know everything she's feeling. And we may know that in our heads, but when we are suffering, we want assurance of that. It's not just see, Lord, it's show me that you see and understand and have compassion. Who do the people of Jerusalem get their comfort from in that situation they were going through. Well, over this uh, next week, if you have a read of the book of Isaiah, the second part of that, chapters 40 to 55, they were a prophecy of what would happen after the people of Judah had been taken into exile by Babylon. They speak of God raising up uh, the nation of Persia under King Cyrus to defeat Babylon and free God's people and allow them to go back into their own land. And chapter 40 of Isaiah starts with these words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And that theme of comfort continues throughout the rest of that book. How does God comfort us? Well, the greatest comfort he can give us is, as we read in those verses, to reassure us that our sin has been paid for, that it's been paid for by Jesus on the cross. And therefore, on the day of judgment, we will experience God's love, his forgiveness, and not his anger. 
But that doesn't mean that God doesn't care what happens to us in the meantime. And we see this in the compassion that Jesus showed during his time on earth. Jesus was good friends with Lazarus and uh, his sisters, Mary and Martha. And when Lazarus died, he went to Bethany to visit Mary and Martha and found them weeping. He could have just said to them, look, it's going to be okay, I'm going to um, bring Lazarus back to life. But instead it says, Jesus wept. When we lose someone dear to us who's a Christian, God doesn't just say, well, don't worry, they're safe with me. You'll see them again one day. He doesn't just quote from Revelation that one day he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. Both of those things are true and they're great reassurances. But he still knows our pain and he weeps with us in our loss. And therefore we can go to him for comfort. Our final hymn this morning is one that was sung during the funeral service of the 116 children and 26 adults who died in the Abervan disaster in Wales. And you can imagine the tears that were shed during the singing of that hymn. In desperation, they would have sung these words. Other refuge have I none, hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, ah, leave me not alone, still support and comfort me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God of comfort and a God of compassion. And we praise you that you know how we feel right now. You know and understand any pain and grief that we may be feeling, any sense of loss that we're experiencing, any worry about a future pain or loss. And we thank you that you weep with us in our grief. Father, we pray that you would grant us your comfort, that we may face each new day trusting in your mercy and your strength. In Jesus' name. Amen.